Let's get to God's word. Psalm chapter 51 is where we're going to be, but also turn to Psalm 32. We'll be in both of those locations this morning. We are continuing our series entitled Pilgriming with the Psalms, where we are focusing uh, the summer and moving through various psalms um, and, and that deal with the experiences and the emotions of the Christian life and seeking to find in the psalms uh, help for us as we engage with, as we respond to, as we respond to life's experiences and life's difficulties and joys. And ultimately, we are looking to the Psalms to help us not only process and communicate those things, but ultimately lead us into greater, greater sense of worship of our gods. And so we looked at um, the experience of guilt two weeks ago. It was gone last week. Um, we are going to end up, we're going to jump back into um, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 this week. And look at the opposite of guilt. Some weeks I'll be able to deal with both sides of the coin. This took two weeks. Looked at guilt a couple weeks ago. Now we come to the opposite of guilt in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. This is, many of you uh, may be familiar with Psalm 51. Some of you may not be. It is a fairly famous psalm, one of the more famous psalms uh, of David. After he had committed a horrific atrocity, he had had an affair with a woman he saw from his balcony... Uh, he took another man's wife and uh, had adultery, committed adultery with her. Then as he, she became pregnant as a, uh, in the course of that adultery, and as a means of covering up his sin, decided that he needed to get rid of the husband. And so eventually has one of his most faithful warriors, a man who had walked with him for many, many years, uh, a man named Uriah, murdered on the front lines of battle to cover up his sin. And this is David after he had come to the realization of the audacity of what he had done and his sin. In Psalm 51, we find his great confession and crying out to God for mercy. What is often not known, though, is that Psalm 32 is also a confession of David that is in in light of that sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 32 appears to be later on in the life of David. But it is responding to the Lord's provision of the mercy that he has pleaded for. It is kind of looking back. It is all more autobiographical. Psalm 51 is the crying out for mercy. Kind of in the moment, in the midst of the sorrow and the suffering of that event in his life. Psalm 32 is looking back on that event. And looking back after he has experienced and sensed God's forgiveness in his life. And so we're going to look at both of these as we look at the idea of mercy and forgiveness this morning. So Psalm 51, we'll read the entirety of the, of the chapter and then jump over and read the entirety of chapter 32 as well. Hear God's word. Psalm 51, verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David says this, Have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in your sacri- in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And now chapter 32, Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Give you a second to turn over there. A few pages to your left. The whole chapter, verses 1 through 11. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in hearts. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and beautiful words. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. All right, we dealt with guilt a couple weeks ago. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do when you're like David? when you are crushed by the weight of what you've done. Can you imagine being David? He has an affair. And then he doesn't stop there. He impregnates Bathsheba. Then he doesn't stop there. He goes and tries to get his friend Uriah to come home to conceal it, and that won't work. So he ends up conspiring to murder his friend. What do you do then? What do you need then when the weight of that kind of guilt, when you've had an affair, when you've murdered somebody? Man, what do you do with that guilt? What do you do when you're Peter and you deny your Savior because you're scared of a little servant girl? What do you do then? What do you need then in your life? What what do you do if if you're, you're Paul or Saul and you have cursed Jesus' followers and put some of them to death and thrown them in prison, what do you need then? What do you need if you're John Newton and you have spent the majority of your life and used your wealth and amassed greater wealth and shackling hundreds and thousands to slave ships and you realize you're guilty of blood guilt? 
What do you do then? What do you need then in your life? What about you? What have you committed? What's the worst thing you've ever done? You bully the classmate. You say nasty things. It seems pretty small until they kill themselves, right? What do you need then? You stole money from your grandmother. It's more frequent than you would think. What do you need then? You lied and someone else took the fall. You got divorced and your life got great, but your child has never recovered. What do you need then? What do you need then? What do you need when you impregnate the girl in high school and you convince her to have an abortion? What do you need then? How do you get over these things? How do you deal with your guilt? We talked about a couple weeks ago the experience and weight of guilt, and we actually pointed back to Pilgrim's Progress, where there at the beginning of that story, the man, when he is, after he's read God's word, he feels crushed by the weight of his sin. And it's, it's depicted by a huge boulder that he's carrying around on his back. And the more he comes to understand God's word and God's law, the boulder gets bigger and heavier and more weighty. What do you need when the boulder of your sin is crushing you? You feel like you're going to die. In a word, you need, you need mercy. We're going to backtrack a little bit this week. We're going to go back somewhat, but we're going to pick up pretty much right where we left off. That's where we ended a couple weeks ago, right? Crying out in that song, tender mercy. We cry mercy the simple cry for mercy. What's it like to experience mercy? When you have committed that sin, that sin that maybe you don't know if you'll ever be able to tell anybody else in the world about, what does it feel like to experience mercy? What does it involve? We're looking at this morning. What does it, experience, what does it look like to experience mercy? Well, to experience mercy includes the following. First thing it's going to involve when you experience mercy is true repentance. True repentance, it is a means of God's mercy that you would actually repent. Again, we're kind of backtracking, but to pick up and to provide some continuity between two weeks ago and today. True repentance, what do you need when you're guilty is to repent. Psalm 32 was St. Augustine's favorite psalm. In fact, Augustine had it inscribed on his wall when he was close to death because he said this. He said, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. Well, in reality, in many ways, we could also say is the beginning of experiencing mercy is to know oneself to be a sinner. It is in many ways, it is the first step towards experiencing the fullness of restoration with God. But we hate it, don't we? Everybody hates to have their sin exposed, to, be, to feel and experience the weight of that sin. And if you've ever sinned in a big way, I remember my senior year, I got heckled through an entirety of my last district basketball game by these three guys who sat from the time I started to warm up, and they yelled at me. It was their mission to get under my skin, and they did it. The last second, I missed a three-pointer that would have tied the game in triple overtime. And as I'm walking into our locker room, these three guys are waiting outside of our locker room, and they're there heckling me. And something in my mind exploded. You've ever had the experience where you're like, you better hold me back? It was one of those experiences. It was in a group of people, half of whom were from my church, suddenly hear me, hear me yelling and screaming and expletive laden, come on, you want it. 
I was grabbed and thrown into the locker room. The next morning, I had to get up and go to church. You ever experienced the shame of your sin? It feels like even if no one knows about your sin, if it was done in the darkness of secrets, it's as if everybody knows about it. This is the experience of sin, isn't it? This is what Adam and Eve felt from the very beginning, wasn't it? And as soon as they sinned, what did they feel like they needed to do? They had to cover themselves. They had to hide. And what we will often do, our immediate and natural response to our sin is not to repent, but it's to cover ourselves, to run away from the confrontation and from the conviction of our sin. But listen, if you cover up your sin, it will kill you. It will kill you. What you need more than anything else is to have your sin exposed. But it is unbelievably painful. But the beginning of mercy, the first taste and the first drop of mercy is to have your sin exposed. The mercy of God to David is to experience repentance when his sin has been exposed. And instead of covering up his sin by finding the fig leaves of the garden, instead he's willing to reveal his iniquity before the Lord to acknowledge it in all of its nastiness. So here's what happens. Here's what true repentance looks like. This can't be the fullness of our sermon. We could talk about repentance at length, but I'll move through this rather rapidly. Four things about what true repentance that comes from God's mercy. What does it involve? First, true repentance that doesn't cover up your sin, but it allows it to be exposed is a repentance in which you understand that your sin is relational. Your sin is relational. David said, I have, in Psalm 51, I have sinned against God. Now, you think he would say, I've sinned against Bathsheba since I, you know, took her, or Uriah since I, you know, took his wife and then killed him. But instead, he says, I have sinned against God. Ultimately, all sin is God-connected. Imagine this, being the mother who has given your life for your child all of your life. You have served your daughter, and in your face, as she's going off to school, she says, I hate you. This is what we've done to God. That God has given himself to us. He's provided us all that we need in the garden. He's given us life and health and happiness and so many things in this world. And yet we have said, buzz off. Buzz off. We have spurned our father. We have rejected him. We have wounded the very heart of God in our rejection of him. Realizing your sin is relational. And you begin to see it not as simply, I've broken a law or a commandment which feels so institutional and whitewashed and rigid and aesthetic. But instead, we've actually broken someone's hearts, become something different, right? God's law is a reflection of his character. It's not arbitrary rules that God has given us. So to break his law is to break the relationship with him. Second, true repentance that comes from God's mercy means you don't hide from the full wretchedness of your sin. The confession of your sin must involve a sense of the gravity of it. False repentance, false confession is the confession that says it deflects a little bit, right? You blame it on your circumstances a little bit. You say, yeah, I did so, or you, you mitigate the weight of it. Yeah, that was wrong. I made a mistake instead of I've affronted the very face of God. We often will mitigate our sin, but in some ways, repentance, though, that is true and is right and that it's as a result of mercy will actually be infinitely more painful because you won't put up the guards. You won't hedge the pain of it. You will smell it in all of its wretchedness. The best illustration I can have of this, I think, is, and I'm not sure this is actually a true historical event, 
but it was in the movie Amazing Grace where William Wilberforce, who is the man who in England, at least from the, the, the side of the Caucasians who are in authority, that he is seeking to eradicate slavery in the English worlds within the empire. And Wilberforce is a member of parliament. He's going out with a bunch of his friends. They're going out for a dinner party, a dinner cruise, a sunset dinner cruise. But so they go out on a big ship and they go, go out a few miles out and have a great dinner and dance and have a wonderful party. But when they come back in, Wilberforce instructs his friend who is the captain of the ship to bring the ship alongside and to dock it next to a slave ship that has just recently returned from disposing of its wares. And what happens when they come next to that slave ship? They park next to it and the wretchedness of the smell, the people cannot handle it. Women begin to throw up. They begin to take their handkerchiefs and their shirts and they cover their mouths. And Wilberforce, at least in the movie, he stands up and he says, do not cover your face. You smell your sin. He said that ship, that ship left Africa with 600 men, women, and children. And when it finally made, made, reached the Caribbean, it only had 200 left. You smell your sin. It's the grace of God to expose your sin, to smell it in its full wretchedness and the weight of it. This is what happens to David, isn't it? Right? What does God do? He sends Nathan. And is Nathan's exposing of David's sin real sweet? David, it's okay. It's okay, honey. <laughs> no, it's you are the man, right? Gives him the parable in which he says, listen, there was a man who was great wealth, and he took the he had a neighbor who had only one little lamb that they loved. And the man had a friend come to visit, the wealthy man had a, man, a friend come to visit him. And instead of slaughtering and feeding one of his own sheep, he went and he steals the poor man's sheep, and he slaughters that and gives it to his friends. And David says, that man ought to be put to death. And Nathan points to him and says, you are the man. Smelling your sin is the, is the start of God's mercy. It's a means of God's repentance to feel the full weight of it, the wretchedness of it. Third, true repentance that comes from God's mercy is when we take full responsibility for it. Verse 5, David says this in Psalm 51, I did not cover my iniquity. What does that mean? It means this at the very least. I didn't cover my tail. I didn't try to... I, I didn't try to hold, my, hold off some of the pain. I, it meant full disclosure. I didn't, there was no yeah buts to David's confession here. He doesn't say, yeah, well, 20% of the problem was mine, and then some of it was Bathsheba's, and then if Uriah had been a better husband. No, no, he takes the full weight of the sin. Listen, it's just as a, as a wise application, we tell our kids, this, this is when you're in relationship with other people, that when you are seeking to have relational restoration, that you take 100% of the guilt without any yeah buts. And this is how often, I had a family member who would do this, who would, like, whenever they would confront you, or there would be an, a, a fight, and you, they would, we would confront them about their sin, they would say, yeah, you're right, I did some, but you did this. I had somebody who sat in my office a number of months back, and they were really irritated about some things going on in the church. And they were, they were being confronted, but they're impatient. And they confessed, yes, oh, man, I, I am such an impatient person. But essentially, the gist of their answer was this. I'm so impatient, but I'm impatient because all these people do this, this, and this. 
And really, so I came down to eventually having to confront this person and saying, oh, you're impatient because other, you have to deal with other people. They were hedging. They were not taking on the full weight of the responsibility. David says, it is my iniquity, mine, 100%. It is not mine in part because of other people. I'm taking 100% of the blame. That's what David does. It's your own sin. It's your own corruption. You don't have any yeah buts. You take the weight and responsibility of it. Fourth, though, true repentance that is born of mercy means eventually what you will do is you'll cry out for mercy. You'll cry out for mercy. What's the very start of the passage say? David, Psalm 51, the very start of David's prayer, he says this, Have mercy on me, O God. Before he begins to confess his sins and get into the specifics of it, he starts out right there. And that's where we ended two weeks ago. Have mercy, God. Please have mercy on me. True repentance leads to a pleading to God for mercy from him. The law is there. What God has given us is to help us see our need for God, to lead us to cry out to him. We hate asking for mercy. We don't, we'll admit to some sense of flaw some failure, some mistake, but ultimately, we, often we feel the full weight of our sin when we've cried out, God, have mercy, mercy on me. There's nowhere else I can go. We hate asking for mercy, but God loves it when we do. He loves it when we ask for mercy. There's a, there's a, 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 a story in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus is coming along and he's doing his thing where he's, he's walking and teaching and people are following him. And as he's walking along, there's an account of a blind man who hears that Jesus is coming and as a blind man, he hears the crowd coming and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the response of the crowd and the response of the disciples is to, to shush the man. Shush, shush. No, 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 no. Jesus doesn't want to hear about that. And what does he do? He gets louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what does Jesus do? He runs to that man. Jesus loves to show mercy. This is who God is. The cry for mercy gets to Jesus like the cry of a baby gets to a mother. That was, that was set up. <laughs> that was perfect timing. It's been Shark Week, so I'll give you a quote about connect sharks and Jesus. It's a great quote. So it's like this, there is no shark in the ocean who is more attracted to blood than God is to the cries of mercy. There is no shark in the ocean who is more attracted to blood than God is to the cries of mercy. God loves it when you cry out to him. True repentance will end with that. It will lead to that. So it starts there. True repentance to God's mercy to us, to experience it, always begins with the process of repentance, of confession before the Lord. But then, what do you... What do, how do, you, how do you get the power to do that? How are you willing to do that? See, when, when not only when you, um, you will be experiencing mercy, not only when you have true repentance, but also when you realize that you have safe reception, that you are going to be received by God. You see, the, you will never confess fully. You will never be able to open yourself to the, show, exposing to the Lord the full nastiness of your sin before God until you realize it's safe to do so. But did you know it's safe to do so? I've got a great story from John Ortberg, and I'm just going to read it because he's a way better storyteller than I am. Here's the story about what it looks like to be safe or not safe to confess. John Ortberg, who's a fairly well-known pastor 
uh, has written a number of books you may have read before. But John Orport tells the story of him and his wife in their early years of marriage, and they had a couple of little, little kids. And he was getting ready to sell his Volkswagen Beetle in order to help them buy the, the wonderful new furniture. They had, you know, lived off Goodwill furniture in their early years. And finally, we're at a place, they're going to sell the car, they were going to buy, now they're going to buy the good furniture for the house. And so they go and they sell the Beetle, and his wife, I guess, I don't know when this was, but she wants a mauve sofa. That this is her pride and joy, is a mauve sofa. Now, he said it looked like Pepto-Bismol. But, but the, the more sophisticated way to call it was mauve. Mauve sounded better. And he says they go to the, 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 uh, the furniture store, and the salesman finds out that they have a couple little kids. And he says, listen, I, I'm going I'm to try to convince you. you know, I have some kids. What you need to buy is a, a couch that looks like dirt. <laughs> but they were young parents, and they were naive and thinking that they could control their kids wonderfully. And so they were like, no, 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 no. We want the mauve sofa. And so they buy the mauve sofa. So they buy the mauve sofa and they bring it, bring it home. And from that moment on in their household, their number one rule in the household was do not mess with the mauve sofa. Do not look at the mauve sofa. Do not play around the mauve sofa. Do not think about the mauve sofa. He said it became the, the run rule, kind of like the rule in the Garden of Eden. You may play with all the other furniture in the house, but of the mauve sofa you may not touch. You may not think about for in the day in which you t- sit on the mauve sofa, you will surely die. This is the mauve sofa account. Well, he said, one day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. And so his wife, who had chosen the sofa, who adored the sofa, lines the kids up, Laura, age four, Mallory, two and a half, and little Johnny, six months. And she said, do you see that stain, that red stain, that red jelly stain, children? The man at the furniture store says that stain is never coming out. It will be there forever. Do you know how long forever is? And yes, you're going to know how long forever is because that's how long we're going to stay here until one of you confesses who did it. Well, finally, one of the kids broke. Little Mallory, the two-and-a-half-year-old, with trembling lips and tears filling her eyes, goes, Laura did it. (laughs) Laura, of course, denied it, making her plea, and then there was silence. A long silence. Orberg went on to say that I knew, he said, I knew my kids wouldn't confess. For they had seen their, they'd never seen their mother this angry before, this mad. I knew they wouldn't confess because they knew they would spend eternity in timeouts. <laughs> and finally, I knew they wouldn't confess because I was the one who put the red jelly stain on the couch. <laughs> and there was no way I was confessing. <laughs> The point of that is to say this, no one is going to confess unless it's safe. You're not going to confess unless it is safe. Listen, let me get serious. Husband whose wife has said, you look at pornography one more time, I'm leaving you. And I'm taking the kids. You're going to confess then? That's not safe. You've got to give you a covenant in your marriage. I will stay with you for better or for worse. The place of growth Threats like that have no place. I will leave you, man. Is it safe? Is it safe to confess? Is it safe to confess to the government that you've cheated on your taxes? Not so safe. Not so safe. Man, when I was a youth pastor, man, things always happen on camp trips. I haven't heard from Ben this week, but I'm sure something happened. But (laughs) 
My last, no, my second to last camp with our senior hires, second day I had um, a girl come to me and say, one of the girls, we had gone to Target to get supplies for the week. She said one of the girls took a, she shoplifted. Three of us saw it. So I went with another one of our chaperones and confronted the girl and she confessed. So we're from Mississippi. We're in the state of Florida at this camp. And so I'm like, oh boy, you play the pastor. What do you do then? The initial thought is, right, we're, you know, we're, okay, we're going to go to the store, and you're going to return it, and you're going to apologize. Well, but I just want to be sure that was the thing to do. And so I called uh, the church's lawyer, and I said, all right, here's the situation. What do I do? And he said, do not have her go and return that stuff. They will prosecute, and she will go to jail. He said, here's what you have to do. You have to get her across state lines. You have to put it in a box with an apology note if you want her to confess, and she has to send it back, or else they will prosecute her. It wasn't safe. To confess. Is it safe to confess? Here's what David tells us. David says, I have found the place of safety. And it's not the place that you would think. Because I, you must go and you must confess your transgressions to God, the very one to whom you sinned against. And why does he say that? Because he says, because of God's steadfast love for us. God forgives the guilt of my sin. Therefore, we've got to confess to him. God doesn't push us away when we sin against him. Instead, he calls us and beckons us to draw near to him. He says, I'm coming to you because of your steadfast love. That's the word hesed love, which is, many of you know, is a very famous term in the Old Testament. It means God's covenantal love. And in the words of the Jesus story of the Bible, it's God's never giving up, always and forever love. It's the love that says, listen... Listen, you could not obey yourself into my love, and you cannot disobey yourself out of my love. That's what it means. The Hesed love of God. He will love you, and he will express to you his mercy. David says, I, can, I, can't, I will not hide my sins from you. You see, God is supposed to be the place. He is the rock that ought to crush us because of our sins. But instead, what does he become? He becomes the rock of ages, the cleft of the rock in which we hide. Safe reception from God. When you come to him with your confession, you are welcomed like the prodigal who runs home. And what does the father do? He runs out with arms wide open to his child. Not, you know what? Bravo. It's not what he does. It's not what he does. But not only are you safe, not only are you safe, God's mercy extends to us repentance Draws us into his kindness, draws us into repentance, confession, makes us safe when we do come and confess and repent. But third, God's mercy blesses us. With what? Psalm 32, where does it start? Psalm 32, verse 1 Blessed, blessed are the one whose sins are forgiven. We don't just have God's safe reception, we have the blessedness of God's forgiveness. That's what makes it safe, right? Forgiveness received. That's what we need. True repentance, safe reception, forgiveness received. Forgiveness, it literally means, you know what forgiveness literally means is lift it off. Lift it off. Before the sin is confessed, as we talked about with our guilt a couple weeks ago, we feel it like a burden that crushes our souls, that we feel even physically. David confesses that again in Psalm 32, right? My bones wilted away under the crushing burden of my guilt, but I was blessed when I confessed my sin and was forgiven. John Bunyan, again, Pilgrim's Progress, where he describes 
How does he get rid of the boulder on his back? He's traveling along with the weight of that boulder and he comes to a small, a small hill and he walks up to that hill and there at the top of that hill is the cross and he says when his eyes, set, set, his eyes um, were looked upon that cross, the boulder immediately fell off of his back. It rolled down into the hill and down into a grave where he was never seen again. The forgiveness of God says this in Psalm 103 when we confess our sin, God removes it as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers it no longer. God's forgiveness. What's the great, the great hymn? It is well with my soul. My favorite line, and I've expressed this before, is the consciousness of the line. I think it's in the third verse, my sin. Then he, 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 he stops. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the tree, and I bear it no more. The weight of it is gone. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. God shouldn't be safe, right? You know the story from Narnia, C.S. Lewis? There's the great lion. Is he safe? Oh, no, he's not safe, but he is good. The reality is, if, if you've received God's provision in Christ Jesus, the lion who was not safe has become very safe. The lion, we, we talked about this morning in the attributes of God class. We learned about the omnipotence of God, the power of God. And we think about what the world thinks of, but they think of the Old Testament God as this. This angry nostril, has smoke coming out of his nostrils, red-flamed God, like, you know, blood vessel through his, through his forehead. That's the kind of God we think of who's angry in his power and his malevolence against us. But instead, no. Well, God uses that same power both to save us but then once we are in Christ Jesus and his forgiveness, that power is meant to protect us. Protect us. You are safe. God should not be the safe place, but he is. How? How can God forgive people like you and I? How can God forgive David? Justice cries out, right? For David to be punished for his sin. Well, to understand and to come to the realization of the full weight of the mercy that is yours in God's forgiveness is you've got to understand the ingredients of God's forgiveness. Two parts, not H and not O, but count and cover. Two, two ingredients of forgiveness are count and cover. What does he say? The blessing of forgiveness in verse 2 is the man, blessing of the man who against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The blessing of forgiveness means that God does not count your sins against you. It's a, it's a legal term. It's actually an accounting term, which means that God imputes. He removes from the ledger your sins that are on your account. Have you ever had your parents do this to you? When you especially, I mean, if you grew up in a, a, a law-abiding Christian home, God is up there. He's keeping a record of all of your sins. In fact, mom and dad are keeping a record of all of your sins. I think I talked about this Wednesday night in a class. I probably should have looked up the verse because I think there is a verse about God does keep a record of sins. That is true. But then he says, I don't keep a record of sins. That's odd. Well, the reality is, is he gets rid of that record. He puts it, he takes, he takes all the things that you owe. You know, when, when, you, when, you, give some, when you buy something from somebody, or, you, or you actually when you give something to somebody, in a sales contraction, they give you something back, right? They owe you something. Well, your sin, know what God owes you? Hell. Wrath. The ledger of your sin has been taken off. 
All the accounts and the records of all that you have done wrong has been put on a different ledger. It's not on your ledger anymore. It's on Jesus' ledger. That wasn't an accounting error. That was the plan for him to take your sins. So that's count. And then there's cover. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Then the next phrase, whose sin is covered. Forgiveness is to have your sins covered. Jesus covers our sins. Do you know on the cross, what you ultimately died of was exposure? They would nail your hands so that you could not cover yourself. Can you imagine getting judged like that? You know, we, we, we execute people primarily in relative privacy. Not then. They put you in the most prominent place. They wanted you to feel the shame of your sin. Jesus took not only the, the weight, the guilt of it, but the shame of your sin as well. Why would Jesus die in such a degrading death? Why? Why would he not be able to cover himself? It's so that he could cover you. He could cover you. He covers you with what? What does Jesus cover us with? This is a theological question. Let me tell you, he covers us with righteousness. With righteousness. Here's the great trade. This is what I used to tell my youth, youth kids. There's a great trade of all of human history. Is what happens on the cross. You see, in evangelicalism, we only think the trade was one way. We think that Jesus, we know that part about how Jesus took my sins. That's nice. But do you understand that it's not that he just took your sins and your ledger is clean and now you've got to spend the rest of your life trying to keep your, your ledger clean forever and ever and ever? No, no. He is taking your sins. That's what he took. That's the trade he got from you. And what you got from him was his righteousness. So that on your ledger now is all of Jesus' acts of righteousness. And let me tell you something. It covers every square inch of the book. That's what it says in Revelation, right? That the books, all the deeds of, G of God could cover the whole world with all that God has done. It covers you. This means this, that when you read in the Gospels in a whole new way, it means when you read about Jesus and his brokenheartedness and his compassion for the lost, that's now on your, on your accounts. When Jesus heals the brokenhearted, when he heals the paralytic, God looks that's on your account. You see, my parents may have been right. God, there may be a book that God in heaven, he's going to come in our judgment, he's going to pick up, and it's going to be all my deeds, all my filthy, wretched deeds. And he's going to, God's going to pick it up, and maybe he'll read them. Maybe he won't. I don't know. And he'll read through all the horrific things in front of all the world that I have done, and then he's going to go, you see this? Gone. Let me, and he's going to pick up another book, and it's going to be Jesus' book, and it's going to be the ledger of all the things that Jesus did, and he says, this is your ledger. This is what happened on the cross, the great trade. You got Jesus, you got, Jesus got your sin, and he got your righteousness. But what did it cost to give you his righteousness? Had that happen, his blood had to be poured out. And it had to be poured out over us. You see, his blood is the means by covering us with the righteousness of Christ. There are four wonderful words in Psalm 51, verse 7. I think it's the heart of the text. David cries out, cleanse me with hyssop. And then he goes on to describe a bunch of other words for being clean. You know what hyssop was? Hyssop was a small little plant that was found in the crags of rocks. And it was used to precisely wipe things with it. Almost like kind of like a brush. 
Hyssop was used in the scriptures. The first place we ever see hyssop mentioned in the scriptures is at the Passover. When he says, slaughter a lamb. And when the angel of death comes to the land of Egypt, if you have taken a hyssop branch and taken the lamb and slaughtered and spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the angel will pass over you and you'll be saved. It goes on in the, the, the ceremonial and temple life of the Israelites that they would take hyssop branches and they would dip it into the sacrifices and they would take it and they would fling the blood from the lamb on the people of Israel. To say, cleanse me with hyssop is to say, cleanse me with the blood. David is saying, I know that something innocent has to die for my sin. God's wrath has to be poured out. God's justice must come upon something. But a lamb won't cut it, right? We needed a perfect lamb. That's what Jesus does. The perfect victim is Jesus. He comes and he lives the perfect life that we should have lived. He dies the atoning death for us so that God's forgiveness can be given to us. So that we may be counted as righteous and that we might be covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here's the, great, here's the account. Of, here's how things work. God says to us, God says, listen, if you obey my law, then you may draw near to me and I will draw near to you. But we didn't obey God's law, did we? And so we ought to be pushed away. So he looks to his son and he says, listen, you're going to go and you're going to perfectly obey my law. But instead, I'm going to reject you. I'm going to push you away and I'm going to abandon you so that those who did disobey my law, I never have to abandon them. But Jesus and the Father have agreed on, and that's what Jesus has performed for us. Have you found that mercy? Have you found the forgiveness of God? Your sin may be great, even as great as David's. But however great it is, you'll find mercy in God the Father, in God the Son. Here's what it is to experience the merciful forgiveness of God. Let me read the full account from Pilgrim's Progress, and then we'll go to the table. Remember, it's an allegory. It's a man named Christian who's being dreamed by Bunyan in his accounts on the road to heaven. It says, The burdened man, Christian, his name, ran with great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran until he came to a place where the road climbed up a small hill. At the top of the hill stood a cross, and a little below at the bottom was a stone tomb. And in my dream, just as Christian came up to his the cross, his burden loosened from his shoulders and fell off his back. It tumbled and continued to do so down the hill until it came to the full mouth of the tomb where it fell inside and was seen no more. Christian was so glad and so overjoyed in his excitement, he said, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. He stood for a while and looked with astonishment at the cross it surprised him that the mere sight of the cross could, re- could release his burden. He looked and looked again as tears ran down his cheeks, and Christian jumped for joy, leaping into the air three times, and went on his way singing this song. I don't know how to sing it, but he said this. These are the lyrics. Thus far I did come burdened with my sin. No one else could ease the grief that I was in. Until I came here. What a place this is. Is this place the beginning of my blessedness? Psalm 32. Is this the place the burden fell from my back? Is this the place where the strings that bound it to me were broke? Blessed cross. Blessed tomb. Blessed rather be the man, capitalized, who there was put to shame for me. The mercy of God found in Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray. Let's go to the table. If you're helping us serve, please come forward. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that those in this room who have never experienced and tasted of the mercy of God would cry out for it in this moment. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that those um, in this room who have been seeking to clean themselves up instead of um, coming home have experienced their guilt and so they've sat in the tub scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing trying to make themselves clean so that they can be right before you. Gracious God, I pray that they would cease their scrubbing and that they would come home the safe and wondrous and welcoming and forgiving reception of the Father. Lord, we thank you for these elements, these elements that tell a story, the bread that represents your body, Jesus, that was broken for us, that took the wrath that we deserved, that when our sin was put on his ledger, Lord, you poured your wrath out on him so that we don't have to be broken. And Lord, thank you for the cup, which represents his blood, which is shed, which is poured out on us to make us clean before you, white before you, white as snow. Lord, I thank you for these things. May your grace be poured out upon us. And we set aside this basic bread and this cup for this act of mercy, this means of grace in our life. May you do wondrous things in us. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.